Caesars Sportsbook is the only sportsbook app with Caesars rewards. That means win or lose, every bet brings you closer to the types of perks only Caesars can offer. Like hotel stays at over 50 iconic destinations, bonus bets, daily profit boosts, tickets to the game, dining, and so much more. Whether you're a new or existing customer, Caesars Sportsbook is always rewarding. Must be 21. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Caesars Sportsbook. Don't just spectate, participate. Me about motive. We still are not clear on the motive. Uh, the investigation continues, and that is something we are all extremely, uh, we want to know. We want to know how something like this, something this awful can happen. A tragic start to the Lunar New Year near Los Angeles after a gunman attacks a dance hall. We'll have the latest in the investigation into the latest mass shooting in America. Plus, a search of President Biden's home turns up more classified material as the White House tries to track down any remaining files with sensitive information. And also ahead, we'll explain what's behind a disagreement among allies over supplying tanks to Ukraine. Good morning and welcome to Way Too Early on this Monday, January 23rd. I'm Jonathan Lemire. Thanks for starting your day with us. We'll begin with the deadly mass shooting Saturday night in Monterey Park, California. Ten people were killed and at least ten others were injured when a man opened fire inside a ballroom packed with people who were celebrating the Lunar New Year. Authorities say the 72-year-old gunman died yesterday from a self-inflicted gunshot as police closed in on his van in a parking lot in Torrance, California. That's about 30 miles from the scene of the shooting. The Los Angeles County Sheriff says two heroes stopped the suspect from carrying out another shooting Saturday night in a ballroom in nearby Alhambra. The suspect fled the scene after they were able to disarm him. Joining us now is NBC News correspondent Kathy Park. She's live in Monterey Park, California. Kathy, thanks so much for being with us this morning. Uh, What's the latest in terms of police are saying as to how this tragedy transpired? Well, Jonathan, I can tell you that the hours-long manhunt, as you just pointed out, ended up in Torrance, California, and that's when they were able to actually confront the gunman in that white cargo van. But I should point out where we are standing right now. Uh, We are actually in front of the dance hall where this mass shooting took place in Monterey Park. It happened roughly around 10.30 p.m. Saturday evening. That's when authorities say that the suspect entered this building and began shooting indiscriminately, killing 10 and injuring 10 others, and then moved to a second location in Alhambra, a neighboring jurisdiction here, just a few minutes away. But two heroes, two community members, were able to wrestle the firearm from the suspect before he got away. And of course, you're looking at footage right now. This is where authorities were able to confront the gunman in Torrance, California. Here's what the sheriff described happened next. Take a listen. Our sheriff's uh, SWAT team approached and cleared the van and determined the suspect sustained a self-inflicted gunshot wound and was pronounced dead at the scene. Investigators conducted a search of the vehicle and determined the male inside the van was the mass shooting suspect. 
And Jonathan, the suspect has been identified as 72-year-old Who Can Tran. Obviously, the investigation is still ongoing, uh, still unclear what the motive is at this point. And you're taking a look at the um, suspect image that was released shortly after the shooting took place. But officials are also saying that in that white cargo van, they were able to recover a handgun. And then the other weapon that those two heroes were able to wrestle away from the suspect, it was a magazine-fed semi-automatic assault pistol, which a sheriff believes is illegal here in the state of California. So, Kathy, you just said the motive, of course, remains a mystery. Hopefully we'll learn more about that as the day goes on. But tell us, the latest on those who were hospitalized, who were shot but wounded, are how many are there and are they expected to survive? Yeah, the details of the victims um, are still not being released at this point. We know 10 are among the dead, five men, five women. Also, 10 others were injured. And at, la at the last press conference uh, yesterday evening, officials were telling us that seven people are still hospitalized. We don't have their IDs at this point, but we knew we do know that they they were at least 50 to 60 or beyond as far as their ages go. NBC's Kathy Park live in California. Thanks so much. We'll be checking back with you as the morning goes on. We'll return to that story in just a moment. But now some more classified documents were discovered at President Joe Biden's Delaware home last week. In a statement on Saturday, the president's personal attorney revealed that FBI agents spent more than 13 hours at the Biden's Wilmington residence on Friday. And their search turned up, quote, six items consisting of documents with classification markings. Like the documents previously found, Biden's legal team says the newly discovered files were from his time as vice president. But his attorney also says the new batch included some documents from Biden's time in the Senate, where he served from 1973 all the way to 2009. A Biden administration official and a separate source familiar with the matter tell NBC News that the latest search was prompted by the White House, not the Department of Justice. It's unclear if the new documents were found in the same location as previously unearthed files, which were discovered in a room adjacent to Biden's garage. Coming up on Morning Joe, we'll be joined by a spokesperson and senior advisor for the White House Counsel's Office, Ian Sams. We'll have plenty of questions for him. And joining us now, former U.S. Attorney for the Northern District of Alabama and an MSNBC legal analyst, Joyce Vance. Joyce, good morning. Let's start with one important difference. Uh, when the search at Mar-a-Lago happened last summer, that was done with a search warrant. Uh, this was done uh, at the invitation of the White House, but they continue to find these materials. Do we think that there is at this point any legal jeopardy that President Biden could face? So the short answer to your question is no. Based on what we know at the moment, there's no indication that the president engaged in any form of criminal conduct. I think it's important to say that this is an ongoing investigation and facts can change. And we have to have fidelity to the facts and the law and be willing to, to uh, change our estimation on these sorts of issues as those facts develop. But that said, at this point, there are stark differences between Trump, where DOJ was actually forced to develop probable cause to believe a crime had been committed in order to execute its search warrants, and the Biden situation, where the president's lawyers invited the Justice Department in to do the search at Biden's Wilmington residence. So, Joyce, it's, it was striking that some of these documents dated from his time in the Senate. I'd be curious as to 
what you make of that. Um, and then secondly, you know, this is an administration that has certainly prided itself about trying to be transparent about this issue, though they have come under some criticism for not being a little more forthcoming with these discoveries. Um, do we have a sense that they're damaging their sort of credibility with the public because of the drip, 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 drip of, of news here? Well, sure. There's obviously a distinction here between the legal implications of the situation and the political consequences. We've learned a little bit more about the slow Biden response, and it it looks like this is one of those situations where the lawyers were saying one thing and political advisors were saying something different. And the lawyers run ran, uh, won out in, in this situation because DOJ had spoken with them about minimizing any sort of public conversation very early on in this investigation. You know, how the Biden team ultimately played that out is something um, that communications people will debate. It certainly has not put the former president in a good light. And it has allowed a lot of this initial confusion about whether he, too, has committed crimes. Um, I know communications folks are good at their jobs. And the bottom line here is that it's important for Americans to get accurate information about what went on. When classified documents are mishandled, that's a problem for our country. We have a clear need to reassess how these materials are classified and, and how they're handled. Uh, and that's highlighted, as you pointed out, by the fact that some of these documents are from Biden's time in the Senate. None of this suggests Biden was familiar with the documents or had personally handled them, but it does suggest some sloppiness, some carelessness. We're not entirely sure yet on, on who's you know, fault, who was responsible for packing up classified materials. A lot here left to learn and hopefully a lot left here to learn from. And Joyce, we're always so grateful for your legal analysis. We wanted to have you on this morning because you also have a personal connection to Monterey Park, California, the city where Saturday night shooting happened. Uh, what can you tell us about that community and, and those who live there? Sure. So I grew up in Monterey Park. It's a small community to the east of Los Angeles proper, about 60,000 people, a little bit less than that. The police department is independent. It's not part of the Los Angeles Police Department. Only about 75 personnel there. So for a community like this, that's extremely safe and extremely close knit to have this kind of a, a tragedy is very difficult but especially on the Lunar New Year. Something that we should point out is that this is one of those communities, I think it's the community in the country with the largest concentration of people who have an Asian heritage. And that's on full display. It's it's a very proud community with a tradition of, of great restaurants, great food, great culture. Lots of people continue to use their language of origin. So this will hit the committee hard, particularly coming on one of the most important days of the calendar for many people um, who have an Asian background. Yeah, it's such a tragedy. And we'll certainly be getting the latest from the scene as the day goes on. We really appreciate your thoughts this morning. Former U.S. Attorney for the Northern District of Alabama, Joyce Vance, we appreciate it. We'll talk to you again soon. Still ahead here on Way Too Early, the latest from Ukraine amid an ongoing debate among allies about whether to send more tanks to the war-torn country. Plus, Arizona's 2024 U.S. Senate race could be shaping up. Independent Senator Kirsten Sinema may be getting a new challenger today. Those stories and a check on weather and sports when we come right back. Caesars Sportsbook is the only sportsbook app with Caesars Rewards. 
That means win or lose, every bet brings you closer to the types of perks only Caesars can offer. Like hotel stays at over 50 iconic destinations, bonus bets, daily profit boosts, tickets to the game, dining, and so much more. Whether you're a new or existing customer, Caesars Sportsbook is always rewarding. Must be 21. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Caesars Sportsbook. Don't just spectate, participate. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. It's typing. Oh, he's going to take one play. Purdy. A lot of room now. Odin up over the middle. This is just scramble drill. George Kittle with that juggling catch in the third quarter. It bounced off his face mask at one point. That sparked San Francisco's only touchdown drive of the game. Running back Christian McCaffrey capped it with a two-yard go-ahead score. And the Niners' defense, which picked off Dak Prescott twice, shut down the Dallas Cowboys in the second half. San Francisco wins 19-12, advances to its second straight conference title game. More long offseason in Dallas. 49ers will face the Philadelphia Eagles in the NFC title game on Sunday. Philadelphia quarterback Jalen Hurts showed no signs of injury on Saturday night, throwing two touchdown passes and running for a score during an absolutely dominant first half as the Eagles obliterated the New York Giants 38-7, putting an end to any talk of another Giants magical playoff run. Let's go now to the AFC. The Cincinnati Bengals are headed back to the conference championship game as well. Quarterback Joe Burrow was terrific. He threw two TDs in the first quarter, and the Cincinnati defense smothered Josh Allen in the snow, beating the Buffalo Bills 27-10 yesterday afternoon. The Bengals will travel to Kansas City next Sunday evening to play the Chiefs. That's a rematch of last year's AFC title game. The Chiefs are back in the AFC Championship for the fifth year in a row after defeating the Jacksonville Jaguars Saturday afternoon. Kansas City weathered part of the game without star quarterback Patrick Mahomes, who left late in the first half with an injury, later diagnosed as a high ankle sprain. He returned after the break, was noticeably limping, but played pretty well. A little conservatively, Chiefs win 27-20, but of course his health will be a major storyline in the week ahead. Let's turn now to the Australian Open tennis tournament down under. Ben Shelton is the first American man in two decades to reach a major quarterfinal before turning 21 years old. Out of boy. Advancing last night after five sets against fellow American J.J. Wolf. American Sebastian Corda also earned a spot in his first Grand Slam quarterfinal, edging 10-seeded Hubert Hercotch in five sets on Saturday. On the women's side, American Jessica Pagula, ranked number three, is the highest seed left in that draw. She advanced to the quarterfinals in Australia for the third year in a row by defeating 2021 champion Barbora Kritchikova in straight sets yesterday. And finally, there was a major upset in college basketball last night in Houston, where the top-ranked Cougars fell at home against unranked Temple. Temple, 56-55. It marks Temple's first win over a top-seeded team in more than 20 years. Time now for the weather, and let's go to meteorologist Angie Lastman for the forecast. Angie, it is late January. 
Yep. New York City's getting no snow yet. And honestly, Jonathan, we might have to wait a little longer. Not a whole lot of snow in the forecast for New York City, but inland areas, interior areas of the Northeast, for sure. Here's what's going on. We have 14 million people under these winter alerts still at this time, and you can see why. There's a coastal low that's kind of hanging out right offshore, leaving the coastal areas, places even as far uh, inland as Washington, D.C., with rain, but the interior parts of uh, New Hampshire, Vermont, Maine, dealing with snowy conditions. So we'll add that snow, uh, maybe a couple more inches here through the day today, and then we'll start to see things quiet down. We'll have a drier day for the Northeast tomorrow, but then we look ahead to our next system. It's going to bring potential for severe weather to parts of the Gulf Coast. You can see we'll look for wind gusts up to 60 miles per hour, even some tornadoes likely. That is tomorrow, and here's the system that is the culprit of all of that. It's going to dip to the south of uh, New Mexico here as we get into the later parts of today, eventually gain some steam, bring snow to places like Texas, Texas and Oklahoma tomorrow. Eventually, that rain and the severe threat will continue through the afternoon hours, and then we see it move into parts of the Midwest and the Northeast. Again, it looks like rain is possible for places like New York and Washington, D.C., maybe a little extra snow for places like Boston, but even still, we'll be watching this closely because it's kind of that same thing, Jonathan, where we're on uh, that line between rain and snow, so we'll see exactly how that plays out, but January 29th would be the latest of a first snowfall for New York City, so we'll see. Feels like we'll get there. Angie Lastman, thank you so very much. Still ahead here on Way Too Early, President Biden's chief of staff, Ron Klain, is expected to step down in the coming weeks after what has been perceived as a very successful first two years. What we're learning about his potential replacement. We'll be right back with that. Caesars Sportsbook is the only sportsbook app with Caesars Rewards. That means win or lose, every bet brings you closer to the types of perks only Caesars can offer. Like hotel stays at over 50 iconic destinations, bonus bets, daily profit boosts, tickets to the game, dining, and so much more. Whether you're a new or existing customer, Caesars Sportsbook is always rewarding. Must be 21. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Caesars Sportsbook. Don't just spectate, participate. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. Welcome back to Way Too Early. It's just before 5.30 a.m. on the East Coast, 2.30 out west. I'm Jonathan Lemire. We appreciate you being with us. Let's turn now to the West Wing, where White House Chief of Staff Ron Klain is expected to depart the Biden administration shortly after the president's February 7th State of the Union address. That's according to two sources. Klain, who has served as Chief of Staff since Biden's inauguration, had long been expected to step down at some point after the midterm elections. According to administration official, he has made it known in private conversations just how exhausting the job is. He usually start his days around when we do. He served, Klain also served as Biden's chief of staff during his vice presidency. The president is expected to name former White House COVID response coordinator Jeff Zients to serve as his next chief of staff. Zients previously led the Biden administration's COVID-19 response. He's also served as the acting director of the Office of Management and Budget, as well as the director of the National Economic Council back under President Obama. 
Joining us now, White House reporter for The Washington Post, Tyler Pager. Tyler, I know you, like me, had to work all weekend because of all this White House news. We appreciate you being with us this morning. Let's, a couple topics to hit. Let's start with Ron Klain. Give us an overview. It's a name that a lot of our viewers have gotten to know. Uh, but tell us just how important he was for this White House, which took office just days after the January 6th insurrection and at the height of the COVID pandemic. Yeah, absolutely, Jonathan. It's great to be with you this morning. And you're exactly right. Ron Klain played an integral role in every major decision that the Biden administration made over the past two years. I spoke over the weekend with Chris Whipple, who wrote the book on on chiefs of staff called Gatekeepers, and he ranked Ron Klain as among the best in modern history, putting him uh, on the same level as James Baker and Leon Panetta, Reagan and Clinton, respectively. They're some of their chiefs of staff. And and Ron Klain... uh, Uh, Part of his uh, skill, uh, as I talked to Chris Whipple and other people that worked with uh, Ron uh, over the past few years, but really over his career, is just the depth of experience that he brought to the job. As you mentioned, he served as Biden's chief of staff when he was vice president. He also served as Al Gore's chief of staff. He has experience on the Hill, experience in the Department of Justice and with the Supreme Court. And so he brought just a wealth of experience, understanding how to navigate not just the federal government, but also the political landscape. And a lot of people give him much of the credit for shepherding the administration through its priorities and and taking over under extremely difficult circumstances. When Biden took office, we were in the throes of the COVID pandemic. He helped shepherd uh, the response to that. And then obviously all of the legislative and political success we've seen Biden have over the last two years. So let's talk next about the man who will succeed, Ron Klain, who's taking the job at a interesting moment here where, of course, there is the ongoing story about the classified documents, but also this is the White House gearing up for a very different two years. Republicans now have control of the House, and it's going to be an onslaught of investigations as it starts to think about 2024. That's exactly right. And so as Jeff Zients takes over this role, people I spoke to uh, close to Biden in the White House describe a different sort of setup with this chief of staff model than the one we've seen Ron Klain have over the last two years, where Zients will be primarily focused on uh, operations, on on getting things done. Um, people call him a master implementer. And so he will really be focused on keeping the federal government running. And then Biden has uh, these close political aides who will really uh, drive the process on as he's expected to announce his re-election campaign in the coming weeks and some of the more partisan fighting we expect to see on Capitol Hill as these investigations unfold. Obviously, Zions also comes to this job with a lot of experience, different experience than Ron Klain, spent much of his career in the private sector, only entering government at the beginning of the Obama administration. But as we discussed, he ran the COVID response from the beginning, uh, run praise from, from Biden and others for leading that process, obviously crucial to reopening the country and getting the Biden an agenda on track. He now takes over this job, um, as you said, under uh, under different circumstances and, and arguably just as challenging as the political dynamics here in Washington have changed. And then, Tyler, of course, there are the matter of these classified documents. And this is now twice that the White House has put out public statements saying their searches for documents were complete. And after each time, they found more. Uh, there seems to be some growing frustration with how this is happening. Some people in the building, a lot of Democrats close to it. What's the latest you're hearing about where this story goes from here? 
Yeah, look, I, I think, you know, they're trying to, the White House, that is, is trying to make clear that these searches are only happening because they are fully cooperating with the Department of Justice and the FBI as they launch this special counsel investigations into the handling of these classified documents, uh, maintaining that the search on Friday happened because the White House and President Biden voluntarily gave access to FBI agents to search his Wilmington home for nearly 13 hours. I think at this point, they say that the, all uh, locations have been thoroughly searched and they don't expect uh, additional ones. But we've heard that message before. There's obviously other places that documents could have ended up from Biden's years as vice president. And then a key revelation that we heard or we found out over the weekend is that some of the documents found in Biden's Wilmington home related to his years as, as a senator. He spent nearly four decades in the Senate representing Delaware. And so now this begs the question of what were in those documents and are there other locations that those uh, that paperwork from his Senate years are being held and could potentially have classified material as well. Yeah, and how could those have been there? He hasn't been in the Senate since 2009. Uh, lots of questions still to be answered here. Covering a lot of ground for us this morning. White House reporter for The Washington Post, Tyler Pager, thank you, my friend, for being with us. Still ahead, CNBC will join us for the latest in business news. We'll also have an early look at Wall Street, which is mostly flat before the opening bell. We'll get a sense of what could drive the trading day when we come right back. For business. And for that, let's bring in CNBC's Arabile Gomede, who joins us live from London. Arabile, good morning. Stock futures seem flat this morning as investors look ahead to a busy week of earnings. What's the preview of today? Yeah, good morning, John. So certainly it's going to be a very, very busy week. Plus minus 90 companies are said to report their earnings, the likes of Microsoft, Tesla, as well as Johnson & Johnson, perhaps leading the foray when it comes to that earnings week. But pretty much a flat picture just below the flat line for the most part uh, is the sense we're getting out of the uh, futures then out in the U.S. Of, do of course, it does follow on uh, from the positivity we got last week, Friday, then to kind of close out the week. That came from the tech counters having done uh, fairly well, really rallying towards towards the close of last week, having faltered a little bit in what was a January rally uh, that we have seen of late. Uh, all three of the counters are, however, still in positive territory for the year. And of course, that is the look we will be taking a look at. U.S. GDP numbers for the fourth quarter are expected out on Thursday as well. So very interesting numbers to still look out for, especially when it comes to the inflation outlook and what things will look like for the economy. So, Abile, Google's parent company, Alphabet, is the latest tech giant to announce massive layoffs. Tell us about that. And what's behind the sweeping job cuts uh, across the tech industry? Yeah, so you're seeing quite a few numbers here, right? So now we have uh, Google, basically out of Alphabet. That's 12,000 odd uh, employees said to lose their jobs. You have Salesforce saying that they're going to cut jobs as well. Uh, Amazon saying they're laying off around 11,000. So too the case for for Meta uh, as well. Then as a, as we've noted, Microsoft. So a lot of these tech counters really giving up a lot of their employees, not because they're actually in crisis, but because they ran hard just too quickly, particularly during the pandemic as well. So over the last three or four years or so, they've actually ramped up production in the hope that things would move completely offline uh, or online, should I say, for a lot uh, of people. But the note now is that they actually 
hired a little bit too many. And unfortunately, things aren't um, uh, as quick as they thought they are. So they're going back in a way to some of the normal growth levels. But the problem does become that the likes of Meta, the likes of Microsoft have invested quite a lot into the metaverse. And that means that that may begin to see some sort of weakness if the innovation into that sector doesn't necessarily continue to rein in. But $100 billion in a future that is unknown, I suppose that's the bread and butter of the tech sector as they continue to invest. I remain skeptical. Arabile, one more for you. Federal prosecutors have seized nearly $700 million in cash and other assets connected to FTX founder Sam Bankman-Fried, SBF. What's the latest here? Yeah, so we're getting that uh, sort, of, sort of coming out with news as well. So the clarity here is that clearly some of that money is going to be very interesting to note and who it actually goes on to uh, and really finding that money really in response to what is, I suppose, uh, what the federal prosecutors have been looking for for quite some time. Three accounts were held uh, at Silvergate Bank in the name of FTX Digital uh, Digital Markets, uh, holding over $6 million. Those assets held in the name of Bahamian subsidiaries uh, were seized by the government on or about January the 11th as well. Some of the detail we're getting almost $50 million uh, custodied from Moonstone Bank, which is a U.S. financial institute as well with ties to FTX's management. So really clamping down on as many of Sam Bankman-Fried's assets as possible in order to try and help and give back the money, I suppose, to some of those that are owed. But how much of that is going to clearly be in key question and just when they will be done with uh, collecting all those funds will also be uh, very interesting to note too. A Herculean task ahead to be sure. CNBC's Ariela Gamede line for London. Thank you so much. Still ahead here on Way Too Early, we're going to go through the Memorandum on Abortion Access just released from the Biden administration. And we'll explain what made this weekend's March for Life rally in D.C. different than in years past. We'll be right back. Welcome back. The Biden administration has issued a memorandum on ensuring safe access to abortion medication. Vice President Kamala Harris made the announcement yesterday during an event in Florida that would have marked the 50th anniversary of Roe v. Wade had the decision not been overturned by the Supreme Court. The memorandum directs the Secretary of Health and Human Services, the Attorney General, and the Secretary of Homeland Security to come up with guidance to help patients, doctors, and pharmacies legally access and prescribe abortion medication. We will continue to stand together in the fight to protect the freedom and liberty of all people, of all women everywhere. And here now, on this 50th anniversary, let us resolve to make history and secure this right. Meanwhile, anti-abortion advocates held their annual March for Life rally in Washington, D.C. on Friday. They celebrated the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade and called on Congress to pass federal abortion restrictions. Organizers say they will continue to march every year until a, quote, culture of life is restored in the United States of America. Joining us now, healthcare reporter on Capitol Hill for Politico, Alice Olstein. Alice, thank you so much for joining us. Um, let's start there with the anti-abortion advocates. What are they looking for Congress to do? 
Yes. Yeah, so they fully acknowledge that with Democrats still in charge of the Senate and White House, that it won't be possible to pass into law sweeping abortion restrictions at the federal level. But they still want the Republican House majority to take votes on a bunch of things. And you know, that spans from they want a vote on a six-week ban on abortion, abortion uh, banned at six weeks of pregnancy nationwide. Um, they want to make uh, they wanted them to take a vote on making the Hyde Amendment, the longstanding restriction on federal spending on abortion, permanent, whereas right now it has to be reauthorized in every spending bill. Just a, a lot of things. And the House has actually taken a couple of those votes already, um, but they want to see a lot more. Um, so this is for sort of two reasons. They, The anti-abortion activists both think that this will lay the groundwork for these bans actually passing into law under a future administration and a future Congress. Um, and they also think it will put Democrats uh, on defense. Now, they um, <laughs> Democrats feel exactly the opposite. They say, bring it on. We'd love to take these votes. We think they will be politically toxic for you, much more than for us, pointing especially to the results of this past midterm elections, where uh, they feel that Democrats um, won in many key races because of the unpopularity of proposed abortion restrictions on the right. So I think you're going to see a lot at the congressional level. Um, but legislation isn't actually where I'm most interested in watching. I'm watching how they try to use the appropriations process to try to force um, policies, anti-abortion policies into law, sort of around the edges, holding different agencies, federal funding hostage. I also am curious how they use um, the investigation and oversight process to try mm. to get some things because they, they don't need Democrats' cooperation um, for, for those friends. Yeah, key point there about the politics of abortion after the Dobbs decision seemingly breaking Democrats' way uh, in the midterms in November. So you just went through what's being done in the federal level, but this is also being played out across the states. Uh, so tell us there, what abortion laws are being discussed in state houses across the country? That's right, Jonathan. I think it's really a, a state-level game primarily at this point in terms of what is actually going to affect people on the ground. So the anti-abortion movement is going to target a lot of states. You have state legislatures coming back uh, into session right now this month, some for the first time since Roe was overturned, um, and they are very eager to take a crack at this. Now, you have the anti-abortion movement highlighting four states in particular that they want to target. Those are Florida, Nebraska, North Carolina, and Virginia. Uh, some of those will be more of a long shot than others because of uh, Democrats having retaining some control of, of the legislature there um, or, or governorship in terms of uh, North Carolina. But those are the states they want to focus on. But there's just going to be tons of legislative battles all across the country. And even states that already passed near total bans are interested in going back because they know people are still getting abortions. They know, you know, um, in the intro, you referenced um, medication used for abortion. They know people are getting those pills in a clandestine way and still having abortions. They know people are traveling across state lines. And so they're interested in passing even more restrictions and, you know, legal penalties on top of the bans that are already in place to try to deter that happening. At the same time, you have tons of blue states who are trying to look at what they can do uh, to shield Mm -hmm. patients who are coming in from out of state, to shield doctors who treat those patients, um, and to shore up their clinic systems.
Yeah, and the politics of this do seem complicated. As we should note, no Republican leaders or potential presidential candidates were at that March for Life rally in Washington over the weekend. Politico's Alice Olstein, thank you so much. You were the perfect person to have on for us this morning. Up next here on Way Too Early, what to expect from President Biden's next chief of staff. And then coming up on Morning Joe, live reporting from Monterey Park in the wake of a deadly mass shooting over the weekend. Plus, we'll hear from Democratic Congresswoman Judy Chu, whose California district includes that grieving community. Also ahead, Senator Elizabeth Warren will join the conversation as she begins her campaign for re-election in the great state of Massachusetts. Morning Joe, just a few moments away. Caesars Sportsbook is the only sportsbook app with Caesars rewards. That means win or lose, every bet brings you closer to the types of perks only Caesars can offer. Like hotel stays at over 50 iconic destinations, bonus bets, daily profit boosts, tickets to the game, dining, and so much more. Whether you're a new or existing customer, Caesars Sportsbook is always rewarding. Must be 21. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Caesars Sportsbook. Don't just spectate, participate.